I get it. The environment isn't a person. How can it be racist? But the most basic pieces of the environment, the air we breathe and the water we drink, are controlled and designed by people. And people can be racist. Not straightforward. You've probably heard countless references to environmental racism. Um, the New York Times had an article about environmental racism. We will pass a Green New Deal that will end the environmental racism. It's a matter of health and safety. It's a matter of systemic racism, of discrimination against those in poorer neighborhoods. It's a matter of justice, environmental justice. But do you really know what people are talking about when they say that? Environmental racism sounds complicated, but I'll help break it down so that it's easier to understand. It's important that you understand this stuff so that you can be a more active and informed member of your own community. And you can also come for your family members at Thanksgiving or whatever if we're ever able to gather together like that again. The World Economic Forum defines environmental racism as, quote, a form of systemic racism whereby communities of color are disproportionately burdened with health hazards through policies and practices that force them to live in proximity to sources of toxic waste, such as sewage works, mines, landfills, power stations, major roads, and emitters of airborne particulate matter. As a result, these communities suffer greater rates of health problems related to hazardous pollutants. So what does that look like in reality? Let's take a look at a few examples. In the early 80s, Mexico and the United States came to an agreement that required American companies operating in Mexico to return their waste materials back to the US and to send a notification to the US Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, letting them know that they were doing so. Three years after the agreement took effect, a survey of over 700 manufacturing plants revealed that only 20 had filed a notice that they were returning hazardous waste to the United States, even though more than 600 of them used literal toxic chemicals in their manufacturing process. In the seventh year after the agreement took effect, only 10 notices were filed. So what's happening to these, again, literal toxic chemicals if they aren't getting shipped back to the U.S.? Well, in most cases, they get dumped either in the Rio Grande or in ditches, sewers, etc. that eventually run into the river anyways. That obviously can't be good, but it's revealed to be extremely harmful. In the border town of Brownsville, Texas and Matamoros, Mexico, the rate of anencephaly, the medical term for babies born without brains, at the time of this study was four times the national average. At this hospital in 1991, three brainless babies were born in just 36 hours. One of them was Janet Ramirez's daughter. I cry every time I think of her. In Brownsville, Texas, the median income is roughly a quarter of the national median and the town is made up of 93% Hispanic or Latino residents. The study that showed these health effects was from the late 80s, before the North American Free Trade Agreement, aka NAFTA. Under NAFTA, less hazardous waste should be returned to the U.S., but that doesn't necessarily mean the health effects to those living in the U.S. are lessened. A more recent example of environmental racism that you're undoubtedly familiar with is the case of water toxicity in Flint, Michigan. If you're not familiar, the disaster was caused by a switch in water sources for the town of Flint, Michigan. The supply switch was from Lake Huron to the Flint River. 
The new water supply was, at the time, not treated with an anti-corrosion chemical to prevent lead particles and solubilized lead from being released from the interior water pipes, particularly those from lead service lines or those with lead solder. This water was known to be very corrosive, so corrosive that in fact it wasn't even being used by the nearby auto industry. A General Motors plant in the area switched to water from a neighboring town when they noticed rust spots on newly machined parts. Listen to Flint Mayor Karen Weaver in this 2016 clip discuss how the problem continued for more than two years. Uh, not only African-American, we also uh, have issues, we think it's a class issue as well, because we do uh, have so many unemployed people. So we're looking at this as race, as class. We believe had this been a different community, a rich community, that this, it wouldn't have taken so long for the people's voices to be heard. I'm sure Mayor Weaver means well when she says that race and class are coexisting factors relating to environmental injustice. And it may be true that they are. However, a 2007 study by Dr. Robert Bullard reveals that race is instrumental in predicting the safety of one's environment, even more so than class. The study showed race to be more important than socioeconomic status in predicting the location of the nation's commercial hazardous waste facilities. Dr. Bullard proved that black children were five times more likely to have lead poisoning from proximity to waste than white children while even black Americans making 50 to 60,000 a year were more likely to live in polluted areas than their white counterparts making just 10,000 a year. Anyways, back to Flint. Finally, in February of 2019, after five years of poisoned water, tests finally showed that residents of Flint could safely drink the city's water. It took nearly $400 million in state and federal spending, but Flint finally secured a clean water source, distributed filters to all residents who want them, and laid modern, safe copper pipes to nearly every home in the city that needed them. However, residents are still rightfully wary of drinking the water since they were lied to about its safety years ago. Listen to Flint residents Maxine Onstott and Ariana Hawk describe the lasting trauma that this blatant act of malice has left them with. You're supposed to be able to trust these people in power, and we were bamboozled by them. Are you angry? Oh yeah, of course I'm angry. I'm, a, I'm, I'm more upset and hurt than anger. It's hurting because these are the people who we trust every day. These are the people who said that this was okay. Then there's the infamous quote-unquote Cancer Alley in Louisiana, our nation's second poorest state. More than 100 petrochemical plants dot this corridor between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. The EPA says that the cancer risk in reserve, a town located right in the middle of this corridor, is nearly 50 times higher than the average for the rest of the country. Listen to one reserve resident speak of his association with his town and suffering. They built this monstrosity up on top of us. Even the town cemetery is surrounded by a refinery. Taylor says his mom, sister, uncle, and nephew were buried here. All died of cancer. As I stand here, it, it's overwhelming to me. All of my folks are here. I will eventually wind up here. I don't want to be separated from my dad and mom and them. I got to find something different for my children and grandchildren, but unfortunately, I'm stuck here. Reserve Louisiana is home to Dinka Performance Elastomer, a plant that makes chloroprene, a chemical that the EPA calls a likely human carcinogen. Dinka is the only manufacturing plant for this material in the entire United States. Around 60% of reserve residents are black. 
Indigenous communities are the cities and towns that are perhaps most affected by environmental racism. For starters, loose land laws implemented by the federal government on reservation land allow for corporations to dump large amounts of nuclear and other hazardous waste here. Another example is the decades-long practice of uranium mining on the land of the Navajo of New Mexico, which has caused long-standing problems in the community. From 1951 until 1971, the U.S. Public Health Service performed a massive human medical experiment on 4,000 Navajo uranium miners, allowing them to work without informing them of the effects of radiation, just to study what the effects might be. And guess what? The study found elevated levels of lung cancer and other diseases from breathing in radon. According to the USDA, Centuries of government policy have eroded tribal access to traditional lands, disconnected tribal communities from their traditional food systems, disrupted trade relationships between tribes, increased dependence on food distribution programs, and created barriers for accessing agriculture programs. Given this context of injustice, talking about adapting tribal agriculture to climate change is too simplistic. Indigenous groups in the Southwest U.S. are traditionally good stewards of the land and the food it produces. Furthermore, community health and wellness are traditionally important values. However, capitalism does not consider the value of the land, nor consider mutual aid. Instead, modern capitalistic land use practices intrinsically harm the most vulnerable communities. Dr. Jalen De Maria, a professor at the University of New Mexico says, in order to make profits and maintain control, the actions of multinational agricultural corporations will ultimately make humanity in its entirety, dependent upon the corporate market for its very survival. This dependency is achieved through patent laws and requiring farmers to get permission and pay a fee to grow food. Even after the fee is paid and the permission is granted, farmers must plant in ways that increase corporate profit, but that are contradictory to sustainable patterns of living through biodiversity. When an agricultural practice is enacted that is unsustainable, there must always be at least one group of people who face the consequences, both in loss of food and in the damage done to the land and the environment. When Columbus arrived to the western continents, it's estimated that there were between 5 and 15 million indigenous inhabitants, a number that dropped to around 238,000 by the 19th century. With the genocide of large swaths of indigenous populations, naturally comes the loss of cultural norms, traditional practices, and even languages. One of the greatest losses from this genocide is the loss of knowledge surrounding sustainable and community-minded agricultural practices, often referred to as food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is defined by the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance using the following principles. It focuses on food for the people, values food providers, localizes food systems, puts control locally, builds knowledge and skills, and lastly works with nature rather than against it. One example of the disastrous effects surrounding the loss of food sovereignty can be seen in an indigenous and small farmers cooperative in Tlaxcala, Mexico, who found that their crops were unusable because of a severe infestation of grasshoppers. The presence of grasshoppers is not a clear symptom of our changing environment. However, the grasshoppers did turn out to be a symptom of the loss of cultural farming practices. Indigenous inhabitants in this area used to harvest grasshoppers, a practice that, once reintroduced, solved the infestation problems. 
I could go on for a long, long time, just giving various examples of poor communities of color suffering from an unhealthy, unsafe, or ignored environment. But what I really want to get at is the source of environmental injustice. In 1982, civil rights leader Benjamin Chavez said that environmental racism is racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of the ecology movements. When you think about it like that, there is so much harm that can fall under the umbrella of environmental racism. From a workplace with unfair health policies, to a school building contaminated with asbestos, to a neighborhood with poorly upkept sidewalks, or the more drastic examples we've already looked at that deal with poisoned air or poisoned groundwater. We know that the lasting effects of colonialism and misogyny favor white, wealthy men, and that each characteristic outside of that knocks you down a little bit on the scale of privilege you experience in this country. Not white, gay, unmarried, open relationship, poor, drug user, atheist, all of these things can contribute to your status as a quote-unquote minority when power belongs to wealthy white men, though some are more clearly visible than others and so are obviously more impacting in that way. What I mean by that is you won't experience that same level of discrimination as a white man just because you're gay, as someone who is visibly non-white. Furthermore, a gay person that is visibly non-white may experience compounding discrimination and so on and so forth. These are the systems in place that force minorities into unsafe environments. And these are the systems that allow rich white men and their capitalist mega corporations to take advantage of the land and its residents in the first place. 